You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What is up, everybody, and welcome into the DNVR Lounge right here at the DNVR Bar in the corner of Colfax in New York. This is the Keeping It 1000 podcast with myself, Adam Mates, former Denver Nuggets coach, George Carl. George, it's good to see you. Adam, happy happy end of summer. Happy end of summer, indeed. Yeah. The players are starting to get back in town. You're starting to see the pickup games happening. Uh, media days, like two and a half weeks away, starting to heat up. I'm ready for it. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a really interesting year. I mean, there are a lot of young teams and a lot of young players that weren't good enough last year, but maybe one or two of them could become good enough this year. I feel like a lot of the teams, one of the stories around the NBA is a lot of the teams are the same. They're, the Lakers made a big splash, but a lot of the teams are running it back this year for whatever reason. Well, I was, I was kind of surprised that Denver didn't go after young players. I thought, I thought, I thought coming back with veteran players, I kind of like. Yeah. You know, my mentality is when you're good, you try to win with veteran players more than you do with young players. Uh, they have a great challenge ahead of them with the Murray, the Murray situation. But I, I just think Monte's going to be ready for that. And uh, I think they got enough, enough depth to still try to be a top four, maybe. I'm surprised at how many people I talk to with no connection to the Nuggets. When I say people, I mean analysts. Well, I talk to analysts around that are picking the Nuggets in the Western Conference Finals or beyond because I look at this year and I think they could be, but there's, you know, there's everybody's kind of on the same level, I feel, this year. And for whatever reason, a lot of teams, a lot of people seem to have confidence in the Nuggets. I find that interesting. Uh, it's easy. It's, yeah, it's Nikola. <laughs> you got the MVP true. who was a dominating MVP last year. Doesn't look like he's slowing down. Looks like he's actually learning to be a top professional type guy. He looks good. Have you seen the photos of him? I have not seen many of them, no. But I just I think uh, I think the Western Conference is really strong and really good. But I don't know if anybody can define it. Yeah, I hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of what the Lakers did. I'm I'm probably more of a fan of Phoenix. I'm probably a little bit more fan of Denver. Of of. And, you know, there's always going to be something in the season yeah. that's going to uptick somebody. And, uh, you know, maybe with the mentality of the summer going more veteran-oriented, maybe Denver's into the mentality of, hey, 
we're gonna pull we're gonna pull the trigger this year on trying to win the damn thing right well we're not going to talk too much about the this year's denver nuggets in this episode we are you know the season is is approaching us and we will start getting more into analyzing the current nuggets in a couple weeks we'll also continue sort of every other episode will be a legends episode so we'll bring on some more legends uh momentarily but today i thought it would be fun as we are here in the off season to look at some denver nuggets what ifs go through the history and it's funny because you know, I'm talking, our, our people are getting together, the creative aspect and, and saying what would make for a good show. I talked to George this morning as he's coming in. I say, hey, what about these what ifs? And he says, what if, what if, what if? You don't like playing the what if game. Oh, I don't like to play. I've never enjoyed summer talk. I call it summer <laughs> talk. You know, and all the free agencies, yeah. all the trades and all the what ifs of yeah. who did what and everybody's predicting chemistry and character and, right. and, 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 and toughness of a team that might have four or five new faces. Hard to do. Yeah. Hard to do in this league. And I think everybody, the Western Conference is very, very difficult. And injury can kill you. Like what happened with Murray last year. Um, is Phoenix going to be able to repeat their right. performance? Uh, will the Lakers bounce back? Uh, you know, there's all types of what ifs. But the predicted in the summertime, there's so many inexperienced predictors. Well, this one's going to be looking backwards, what ifs. So we're going to go through, in fact, this episode will in some ways be a, a journey through the entirety of Nuggets history. We're going to go in chronological order. So I'm going to go way back in time to start us off here. Uh, and we're going to talk about things that happened and how they might have affected the trajectory of the Nuggets at that time. First, I want to remind you guys, we're presented as always by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Use promo code DNVR when you sign up. Shout out to everybody in Arizona that watches the show. I know we have a lot of people living in Arizona. Sports gambling just legalized yesterday, so you can download that app. You sign up using promo code DNVR. You get all kinds of great deals. I'm going to tell you about those a little bit later. And then, of course, the NFL season begins this weekend, and you're going to want to check all of those out. They, they, the NFL, they have all kinds of these bonuses. You're to make so much money if you download use promo code dnvr they they're handing out money to you this week um but let's go back to 1970s here one of the worst trades in nba history probably the worst trade in denver nuggets history the hall of famer bobby jones so to set the table he plays four seasons with the denver nuggets he is on a team that is coached by larry brown he is on a team that has dan issel and david thompson a david thompson just coming into his own and really this team as i understand it uh, starting out in the ABA is you got uh, David Thompson on offense, one of the best scorers you have in all the ABA. You have Bobby Jones, who is almost a Jokic-like connector, great defensive player, but just a guy that does everything and willing to sacrifice. Um, and then you got guys like Dan Issel. You had Ralph Simpson. You had a real team. They were a 60-win team two years in a row. They went to the ABA Finals in 1976. 1977, they joined the NBA. And in their first year, they were a surprise team in the NBA. They end up getting bounced in 1977 by the Portland Trailblazers, Bill Walton's Portland Trailblazers, who eventually go on to win the NBA championship. So you look at this team and you think, that's a heck of a team they have in place. They trade Bobby Jones. The rest is history. They fall off the map. A bunch mm -hmm. of other things happen, some we're going to get to. But my question is, Bobby Jones went on to have a Hall of Fame career for the 76ers. What if we go all the way back and they keep those pieces together? Well, Adam, you're talking about my favorite player I ever, I ever played with. So, you know, Bobby Jones and I had two years at Carolina together. And just a really quiet guy, 
kind of a quiet assassin, didn't really love the game of basketball. Really? But when he played the game, he played it with love. But, you know, he wasn't a guy that worked hard in the summertime. He was more of a laid-back conditioning guy. But when, when, the, when the scoreboard was on, there was no, no more better competitor. And they did it with the Carolina way of, of totally unselfish, totally committed to defense, totally committed to team. And um, I think they traded him for George McGinnis, right? Correct. Who played and, one and a half seasons with the Nuggets. And, was done. and George McInnes was a totally different player. And I, if you're asking me what I would analyze back about that trade would be, Bobby Jones seemed like he fits Dan Issel mm. and David Thompson. George McInnes doesn't seem like he fits Dan Issel and David Thompson. George likes the ball. He wants to be more dominant with the ball. He's in the low block. Um I would say, I think Larry, because they lost in the first round, Larry Brown has a way of being impatient at that time. Mm. And I think he overreacted a little bit. I would would have loved to see Bobby Jones a couple more years in Denver with that crew. They lose in the first round, but they lose to the eventual champions. And this is the thing. First round, second round, third round finals. You lose to the eventual champions, so you have to put that in. You would think you have to put that in in perspective. That just got me fired. <laughs> it, did, it did indeed. <laughs> um, do you uh, were decisions made in in your opinion back then? Were they made with the same sort of um, you know thought process, or was the NBA at that time was it a little bit more? Hey, let's get together. We'll make a decision on what we're going to do this off season. What I'm saying is nowadays there's so many different layers that go into decision making. Yeah. No, I mean, it was much more of a smaller board, yeah. board room. Yeah. Uh, the coaches probably had much more say. There were organizations that had dominant organ, you know, general managers, but most organizations were, you know, the, the coach had much more say in the 70s than they do now. Okay. Uh, the, the management has now, because it's become such a big, a billion-dollar business, a big business, you know, owners come into the office every week now, uh, in the in the seventies and eighties, you might have saw the owners two or three times a year. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you know, it just didn't exist very much. The owners didn't have much hand on. And uh, back then, I think the ABA was an MBA, and all that stuff was more of a community service. Have an MBA team or have an ABA team was the owner was kind of big man on in in the city a little bit was kind of the the guy that was bringing entertainment to the city. But never like it is today. Today, it's I don't I don't want to deny that information is powerful, but at times I think too much information can be very confusing, and I think a lot of organizations have that problem in their 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 makeup, their their personality, even today. No question about it. It's funny. Like I even think about this with regards to a business, you know, and us, you know, even us here at DNVR, there's so much information and they have so much talent, but having a good system in place to make sure that that talent is being utilized properly. That's a challenge that a lot of people don't think about. I didn't think about it until I became part of an organization. And I think it's the same principle when you talk about a team or a professional organization of you can have really talented people, but unless the structure of that is put in place rightly, you might have conflicting things coming in. Um, and I imagine in the early days of the ABA and MBA, you probably had a lot of that because people didn't know maybe the right way to go about things. We're inventing the right ways uh, on the fly. 
Well, I remember stories about early ABA drafts were done out of street in Smith Magazine, you know. <laughs> uh, the scouting, the analytics of our game today is so big and broader. We have psychological analysis. We have right, right. analytical analysis. We have basketball analysis. Can this guy be a point guard analysis? Can this guy be uh, shooting for? I mean, in a lot of ways, we overanalyze. Yeah. And coaches got to figure it all out. Coaches got to put the pieces together, which is become, becomes a lot of fun when it works. But when it doesn't work, there's a lot of guessing and second guessing and scrutinizing. And so, and I just think sometimes holding on to a good, good system, a good coach, doesn't happen very often in almost any sport. I mean, I think continuity is highly more beneficial, but not respected in the NBA today. I think it's wild to think about the Nuggets' 55, 56-year history now and to think that their first year in the NBA, they had two Hall of Famers together. They were a very good team, one of the best teams to come from the ABA over to the NBA, and they had an incredible start. It was really that second year when the trade happens that things, you know, it, it almost set a bad tone, you know, in many ways for what was about to come for the next six, seven years. The other player, we talk about Bobby Jones. The other player was David Thompson, who had an incredible start to his career. One of the most dynamic players. He's the single nugget that I've never watched a game footage of that I'm most fascinated by. I mean, he's to me, he's like a myth, a legend. Um, incredible start to his career, but it gets derailed um, off the court issues, namely drugs, which was a big thing in the 70s and even into the 80s. And it went south. You can look at his statistics and just look at 26 points per game, 27 points per game, 13 points per game. It, it was a steep drop-off where you see like, okay, here's where things happen. What do you remember about David Thompson and how good of a player would he have been with a fully healthy and committed career? Well, what I remember about David Thompson is my senior year, they went in undefeated in North Carolina State. Right. And they beat us three times by a total of five points. And uh, I remember a lot of those games. I stepped out of bounds and won the games with like five seconds to go on a baseline Oof. drive, down one. Um, what did you during the time though? What did you think of him? Your arrival at that point? Well, we were disappointed that he went to North Carolina State because I think Carolina went, was really much into the hunt of trying to get him to come to Carolina. But I think that got to be more of a money game. Okay. Uh, from what I heard about the rumors, even back the then, yeah. Um, and uh, you know they had they had Tom Burleson and Monty Tao, and you know we had a good basketball team. Bobby Jones and I were on that team, and. Uh, we had a great year, you know, but that that was back when only one team made the tournament. And um, the year before, we had gone to the Final Four at Carolina. My senior year, we lost in the first, got upset in the first round, and went to the NIT. Had a good run, but um, <clears throat> you knew David was going to be really special because of his not only his athleticism, but he was a basketball player. He had the senses for the game of basketball. Could win a game with defense, could win a game with rebounding, could win a game in a lot of different ways. But if he would have stayed healthy and drug-free, he would have been, I think, a guy that would have been definitely in the top 50. And I guess they're going to release a top 75 team here right. soon. Um, it was kind of sad. I mean, I, I look back on Julius's career. I don't think he gets the love he deserved because of all, most of a lot of his points came in the ABA. And David right, Thompson right. would fall into that category. Connie Hawkins, 
uh, one of the younger, spectacular younger players out of the ABA that came to Phoenix in the NBA. So uh, I think there's a, there's a sadness to what happened there. I mean, the Bobby Jones trade, the David Thomas demise. I think if you were a kid that team, I think Matt Kelvin was the point guard. Yep. People don't really remember how good Matt Kelvin was, too. I don't hear a lot of stories about him. Tell me, tell me about um, him. Well, Matt Calvin, as a rookie in the ABA, just destroyed the league. I mean, he, I mean, things that Trey Young is doing now, Matt Calvin did in the seventies. Shooting uh, from deep included. Uh, he wasn't a, a big time three point shooter, but he was a big time scorer. Okay. He was a small point guard that could score points. Okay. Uh, I know in his rookie year he had a forty point playoff game. Uh, and I know playing against him, he was a very feisty, difficult guy to play against. And I really respected him a lot. Uh, I think maybe Fatty Taylor was his backup at the time. I'm not sure if Fatty was playing for Denver or not. But, you know, it was a good connection to me because Doug and Larry, Carolina guys. Carl Shear was a Carolina Cougar general manager, so I got to know him a lot. Uh, and... <clears throat> I think my one year in, in San Antonio, we played Denver 17 times <laughs> in one season because there's only seven teams in the league. Right. I think we played Denver 16 or 17 times in one year. Jeez. Do you feel like David Thompson, Bobby Jones, and maybe Matt Calvin even, um, is that a championship core? I mean, those guys even at that time were pretty young. They weren't in the league for that long. But do you feel like that was a – you keep that group together, that's that's a, a one-two punch that's as good as anybody going into the late 70s, early 80s. Well, I remember the last year of the ABA, um, the, the Nets. San Antonio played the Nets. We were in the Eastern Conference, however that works. <laughs> and we and the Nets, San Antonio played the Nets in a seven-game series, and the Nets won game seven in, in Long Island. After that series, I think we all thought Denver was going to win. Mm. We thought Denver was the better team, and I think what happened was Julius didn't didn't like the love that David Thompson was getting. Ooh! And Julius came forward in that series and kind of dominated. Okay. And and I thought I thought it would be a close series, and I thought Denver was the better team, but actually I think New Jersey won in five or six. I think yeah, I thought it was six, but yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, and then, and then they had, you know, they had a kid named John Williamson, who was one of my favorite ABA guys, and just mean, strong, tough, six four, six, just fire plug type of player. He got hot in our series and was probably as valuable to the Nets as Julius was, and he sustained it into the into the Denver series also. Was so I, I I love this because I always think about David Thompson and what Michael Jordan said about him and the stories about how high he jumped. The guy you think of when you think of the ABA is Dr. J, and all those same things are true of him. I mean, he had a very Michael Jordan-esque game and that he was acrobatic and played above the rim and could finish and do this and that and also very athletic. <laughs> Were those guys comparable in terms of athletes and just the fluidity with which they played? I know there were other guys like this, but the way that they just played – that's what stands out mm. when you watch Michael Jordan, especially in the 80s, is how fluid and quick and so many things that have now tra everybody's trying to do, they did it. Was, was David Thompson similar to Dr. J in that way? I think David Thompson actually was more similar to Michael. Okay. He's not as big. Julius was longer, bigger, and basically liked playing around the basket more than out on the perimeter. That's why I think David was more, more in the open court more flamboyant, 
more dynamic, and but in the same sense could uh, could go could go in or out, and so I, in a lot of ways, David Thompson didn't have the savvy and passing skills probably of Michael. Um, but you know, again, we didn't see his maturity, I and mean, we saw him early in his career, and then he basically fell off the cliff. And that, that and I, I just think if he would have been drug free, there could have been. I mean, there there would have been a decade of David Thompson stories rather than mm-hmm. three or four years mm-hmm. of David Thomas Thompson stories. This is part of why I say to me he's a myth or a legend. Is the some of the stories that you see or some of the clips that you have, you're like, wow. What else? It's like, well, we don't have the footage of what else. We don't. There's only so many stories that are told, and that that's why every time I hear a new one, I, I get excited about it. Just real quickly, you know, I always hear about the drug problem of the '70s and early '80s in the NBA. Just in your experience, how prevalent was it? I mean, we saw on the Last Dance with Michael Jordan. He was talking about he comes to the Bulls in '83. Everybody's doing them, and he he's like, wow, how prevalent was it in the NBA during that time? I think it was a lot like society. I yep. think society, there was a drug, yep. a drug revolution going on in our country. Some of it good, some of it bad. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that, I think as we learn more about marijuana, I think we're going to realize that maybe we overreacted to that sure. drug as where we probably didn't overreact to cocaine and some of the more powerful drugs that right. can be addictive. Um, mm. Fortunately, I, I had a discipline and I was, that, that drug scared me. Yeah. I had a high school player, a friend of mine, die of overdose when I was early in college. And I didn't understand drugs very well. And I stayed away from it. But what I know about drugs now is I think some of the psychedelics and some of the things that we're learning about that, uh, we might have overreacted to the, the power of saying this is awful and bad. We're going to right. put people in jail, or even just comparing them like they're all the same thing. Yeah, they're I mean, we, we just we just totally overreacted in mm-hmm. a a very I can't think of very a little but filled with a little bit of, I think a little racism in there based on you know, right. So you know, um, but it was there. There there was a drug problem. The popularity leg was going down. In the early 80s, I don't know if you knew, I, I heard all the rumors that the NBA was, teams were ready to fold up. Right. And I think Stern, and uh, early in his career, he fought that, got it into a better place. Larry Bird, Magic, Michael, kind of woke the league up. And now we have what we, now we have a billion dollar league where in the early 1980s, there was some fear that basketball had a chance of folding up a little bit. Right. If we move on to the 1980s here, I've only actually got one for the whole decade. Maybe you have something else you wonder um, from the 80s. But the thing I always hear from my dad's generation, Fat Lever. Nuggets go in 1985 to the Western Conference Finals, but Fat Lever's hurt. He misses most of that series. When he comes back, he's a negative. Now, the 85 Lakers, one of the better teams of all time. you got Magic Johnson, you got Kareem, you got Worthy, you've got all these guys. But Fat Lever was hurt. They lose in five games. If the Nuggets were fully healthy for that series, if Fat Lever was healthy, did they stand a chance in your mind with with the Lakers? Mm. I, I definitely think they stand a chance to make it a series. Okay. And and what happens in a series like that is sometimes an injury determines the outcome. I mean, the Lakers lost a couple series with right. injuries, yeah. and um, I think once Fat Fat Lever was the was the heart of that team in a lot of ways. He, it was the glue, the tough guy, the 
the selfless player, uh, the defensive-minded point guard, and or at least guard that could do almost everything on the basketball court and sacrifice himself in a lot of ways. Um, I think, again, when you lose that in the conference finals, it's just disheartening and it's hard to overcome when you lose maybe the soul, the man that's the, the glue and the soul of your team. And that's the, my recollection of that team. My recollection was uh, when Fat went down, they got, their heart kind of got cut out. Yeah. Uh, that team, I, I always have a hard time picturing them beating the Lakers. And part of this is Doug Moe. He branded it every time when he was asked about it going into it. He said, we're not the Lakers. I mean, come on, we can't get too ahead of ourselves. Almost in some ways, I know he's being a little sarcastic here, but in some ways saying, hey, <coughs> we are below them. Doug <laughs> We go to the 90s now. This one was brought to my attention with, with, your, with you and your team here, but the Nuggets were eligible to win the, the lottery several times in the 90s. Early and late 90s, eligible to win. Gary Payton was on the board. Shaquille O'Neal was on the board. Tim Duncan, they never won. Nuggets have actually never won the lottery. I mean, this is what a, what a few teams that never won it. Had some, uh, some times where they had a great great odds, best odds to win it and didn't get it. But Gary Payton, Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan. Let's just go to Shaquille O'Neal because he's the most interesting. Him and Tim Duncan both. If they pick up one of those two guys in mid-90s, what happens with the Nuggets? Well, I guess, yeah, with Tim Duncan, late 90s, Shaq, Shaq mid-90s. Do they stay around the Nuggets organization that's a little bit in turmoil mid-90s? Do they become stabilized by a guy like that? Uh, I, I think anybody gets Shaq is, goes from pretender to contender. Back then, I mean, Shaq to me was, people ask me a question, what's the, who's the most difficult guy to cover up? And people want me to say Michael, LeBron, Kobe, Durant. The most difficult guy for me to to prepare for was Shaq. Hmm. I mean, at that time, you know, it was a low post game. It was a low post power game, and I mean, Shaq, if you held him to twenty five and ten, you you're celebrating. You know, you're trying to stop him from getting forty and twenty. And uh, I think if you got him in a draft, I don't know where when Matumbo disappeared from Denver, but it looked like. If you put Shaq for Matumbo and Matumbo right. can be turned into something else, they had a good team. You know, they upset us in Seattle one year early in the 90s. You almost, I think, just swapped those guys with more likely be what it was. Coming in similar times. So if you just put Shaq into Kimbe's spot. <clears throat> I don't think if you get Shaq, you, you start building and staying with it. Matumbo is a one-dimensional player. He's a great defender, which is valuable back then. Still yeah. was very successful, not only in Denver, but in Philly. But Shaq was a bo- played both sides of the floor in a, dyna- a dynamic way. Uh, so I would say Duncan or Duncan or Shaq instead of Matumbo. I think it would have turned uh, a team that was a good basket, a very good basketball team, into a, a championship contender. Yes, you're going to hate this question. I promise you. But you just said Shaq, the hardest guy to guard. Here's the thing: because I always hear it, he branded himself as the most dominant player ever. His his stretch. And I, a lot of people agree with it. Here's my only thing. He got swept a lot in his career, including in his prime. He got he got swept, or, or maybe right before prime, right late prime. And I always just wonder, how. what is the reasoning in your mind for that? He got swept by Hakeem. He got swept, uh, you, know, you know, later on in his career. How could he be both most dominant and get swept? Because he, uh, he likes being a... 
like to be in a jokester. He liked to be in a clown. <laughs> he didn't take the game as intensely serious as my, a Michael Jordan or a Kobe right. Bryant or, or even Magic. You know, Magic had Showtime on his side, but Magic was a serious competitor. Shaq kind of cruise control some nights. You know, he just wanted oh. to win. He just wanted to laugh a little bit, enjoy the game a little bit. I remember coaching him in two or three All-Star games. He was a joy to be around. Yeah. But you could see that he enjoyed being the jokester or the clown of the, of the locker room rather than the leader of the competitive nature of the locker room. Yeah. Um, I want to go to 94. The 94 Nuggets, you know very well, beat your Sonics team 1-8 uh, in the playoffs that year, first time ever. Lafonso, like going to the offseason, it was like the Nuggets are cursed. They have this young team. You think, okay, they got all these pieces. Things are that they can really build off of this. Lafonso else gets hurt in the offseason. You go from that, you get hurt, and all of a sudden after that, just things snowball. Uh, you have a team that's pretty promising. They make the second round. They even make it a series in the second round against the Utah Jazz. The next year, they make the first round of the playoffs not very competitive, and then they're done. It basically fall apart. What, what happens if Lafonso Ellis doesn't get hurt? When you think back to that team, do you think that was a team that should have built and really taken off with Lafonso Ellis, uh, Dikembe Mutombo, you had Robert Pack at the time, you had Bison Dele, uh, you know, Brian Williams. So you, you, had, you had some guys that were young and very skilled. Do you feel like they were a team that were, should have rose or they were a team that just kind of had the perfect year things <clears throat> came together for them? I personally thought that they were a team that came together in our series in a very powerful way. Snowballed it, lived down, I think, 3-0 to Utah and came back yep. and took it to Game 7. Yep. Which was, the, you know, the underdog, over underachieving, overachieving mentality of an right. underdog team. Um, and, they, and they lost their best talent. Lafonso Ellis was a star talent. Mitombo's a star defensive player. Right. The other guys were good players, but they were more role players and responsible to certain areas. When they lost Ellis, I thought they lost their way in some way. And a little bit of me says, uh, it's easy to win one series. It's, it's a little harder to win two. Right. It's really, really hard to win three. Right. And sometimes impossible to win four. <laughs> and so I think when we look at a team I would compare the Denver Nuggets to today is the Atlanta Hawks. Okay, yeah. You know, the Atlanta Hawks, they had a great run. They won. They went to the conference finals. You know, Denver Nuggets went to the conference finals in the bubble. But I think the true contenders are the ones that kind of show up in the conference finals or play or have a reason for their losing in the conference finals. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of... I don't know what the word would be. There's a lot of young players that can win one round. Right. But to, to do it the next year and the year after, the expectation is to go a little bit further every year. Yeah, so that's interesting. I always wonder about that team because they did end up being a flash in the pan, but so much went wrong that I, I always wonder. I'm going to fast forward now to 99. I, this might be my favorite what if in all of this. 1999 is a lockout year. It's post-Jordan year. It's a little bit of a weird year. Guys even came back from that lockout infamously out of shape, and it was kind of it was maybe the sloppiest year of the modern era of, of, of the NBA. The Nuggets hire Mike D'Antoni that year. He takes over, and listen to this roster that he inherits. Chauncey Billups, very young. Nick Van Exel, at that time, I think this was his fourth season in the NBA. Rafe LaFriends, Antonio McDice. You have some really young talent. 
nowadays, I know things were a little different. Nowadays, you would look at that and you'd say, hey, we have some young talent. We're not trying to win. Let's, let's build a system and let's build on this for have a two-year, three-year plan, especially if it's a weird year like a lockout where there's only 50 games and they're all bunched up. They're terrible. They're not very good. They are second in the NBA in three-point attempts. There's certain things that happen that you think like, okay, maybe oh, – Kel's going to hear it. Come here and fix the mic just a little bit, point it a little more. Um, nowadays, you might look at that and say – Hey, no big deal. But Mike D'Antoni only gets one year in Denver and he's fired. Now he, of course, goes on to be a great coach. Revolutionizes the game in many ways. What if the Nuggets didn't fire Mike D'Antoni after one year? Do you think that he would have improved in year two and the team would have improved? Or do you feel like sometimes coaches have to fail early to then become the coach that they can be? Well, I think it's both. I think, I think young coaches do make mistakes and got to learn from their mistakes. And sometimes patience... A little extra patience will turn a uh, a bad year, but with decent energy and coaching, can turn. And Mike D'Antoni deserves credit that he's always done that in his career. He's been very successful wherever he goes. Uh, he trusts and believes in his style of play. Um, and that young talent, there's a. I mean, I love Van Exel as a point guard. I love Chauncey. I think uh, McDice was a, a great, great athletic star. Uh, probably never never got to the mountaintop that I thought he could have gotten to. But, yeah, I would have said if Mike would have, would have stayed with Mike, there would, there would have been a turnaround. There would have been some success. But I think that's the time when the organization was going through a lot of chaos. A lot of chaos. A lot of, a lot of management problems. And, and the direction, you could feel the team did not have a lot of direction when it played. Yeah. It, that 90s era, I mean, you have... You go from Issel to Bickerstaff for a couple, two years, less than two years. You go to Bill Hanslick for one year. You go to Mike D'Antoni for one year. You go back to Issel for a couple years. But I mean, there was just, and then you go to players and you have Lafonso Ellis and Dikembe Mutombo for a little bit. Then you have McDice for a little bit. And you got, you know, you bring in Jalen Rose and Chauncey. But all these guys are there for a year or two. And you think about it, were those years, did they underperform or do this or that? Yeah, but sometimes teams hit the reset eight times in one decade and expect, why aren't we getting traction? Well, you keep hitting the reset. And that, to me, was the nuggets of the 90s. That's how I remember them, at least. Well, I think you're kind of simulating where our game is going a little bit. Mm. I mean, as we talked earlier, the 80s, uh, I think in the 70s and 80s, the coaches had more say. As the league got more prosperous and more money-oriented, I think management got more and more into trying to control the makeup of teams and personalities of teams. And the fantasy stuff started in the 90s, right? The fantasy... Fantasy, basketball, and football, uh, maybe. And all of a sudden, everybody was involved with how to make trades and salary caps. And I don't think it was fantasy. You know what I think it was? I, uh, I honestly believe it was Michael Jordan and the things that he brought to the game, which were... We're not just talking about the 48 minutes of the game. We're talking about big picture stuff nonstop. This isn't Michael Jordan's fault. I'm just saying, now what shoes are the guys wearing? And all the other little things that are going on. So we got to talk about it 24-7. And when you do that, this is off-season. This is summer chatter, as you say. This is Now we're talking about what if we traded this guy and did this thing and did this. And that's where you arrive well, at today. I mean, the ones I like to talk about is like, I mean... Uh, um, my, I did a podcast on my Seattle team with Bob Bob Wissett, and he tells a story that he called me up and offered me Clyde Drexler for Kendall Gill. 
And I said, well, how do we get that done, Bob? I mean, I'm, I'm in. I'm ready for that one. And how my, own, my organization did not trust me and did not trust my relationship with Bob Woodson. And they refused to make the trade. Hmm. And then, of course, Clyde gets traded to Houston. I think, you know, we, we, we were as good as Houston in my mind. And Clyde Drexler, I think, would have put us over the, over the top uh, in that scenario. And so I think there are a lot of trades that some people know about and some people never hear about. Right. That, like, you know, the AI trade. Now, you know, the one thing about the AI trade when we made it here in Denver was I was begging our organization to keep Andre Miller. Right. Because I thought Eric Snow controlled AI. Allen Iverson was a hell of a basketball player, but Eric Snow was important to Allen Iverson. Strong-minded. And, you know, and I think Andre could have done similar mm. activities with AI. Uh, you know, we, we, we got rid of, uh, you know, Andre in the trade, and Anthony Carter became kind of our sporadic starting point guard. And we never really got the point guard position back to a, a strong NBA focus, in my opinion. Mm. Well, let's, pa let's put a pause on that one. Let's take a quick break because when we come back, we are going to get into the George Carl era of, of Denver Nuggets basketball and a bunch of what-ifs there, including some stuff about Iverson, Mello, even Dwayne Wade. Uh, but first, I want to tell you guys the presenting sponsor, the, the sponsor that makes this show possible is DraftKings Sportsbook. And you guys know the first Sunday of the NFL season is here. It's this Sunday. The excitement continues with DraftKings Sportsbook. They are an official sports betting partner of the NFL. DraftKings is giving all new customers a can't-miss offer to celebrate the return of the NFL season. If you bet, you sign up, you bet just $1 on any football game this weekend, you receive $200 in free bets instantly, no matter what. So it used to be, oh, if this team wins or that team wins, then you get the bonus. Now it's just place any bet for $1 and you get $200 in free bets. DraftKings is safe, reliable, secure. They make it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. There's no lag time. You say, hey, I want my money out. You get paid. It's not like, you know, you've heard of some of those sites where it's a month to get your money and it comes in pennies in the mail or this or that. No, they're <laughs> reliable, safe, and secure. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code DNVR to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any week one game. That's promo code DNVR to get your free 200 bets instantly this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. Again, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. Colorado only. No customers. Our new customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Back here on the Keep It at 1000 podcast, What If Edition, and we are into the 2000s. And I love this one. It's interesting to me. Everybody always asks the what if Mello went to Detroit. I don't know why that became the flavor of the like this conversation was making the rounds amongst basketball TV shows and this or that this week. I don't want to think about that one, but I do have an interesting one here. Dwayne Wade was on the board and he went on and to have, in my opinion, a greater career than than Carmelo Anthony uh, went on to have. What if the Nuggets would have taken Dwayne Wade in 2003? How do you think he would have done in Denver? And how do you think Denver would have done if they would have gotten, we'll just say, the same amount of time, nine years with Dwayne Wade? <clears throat> you know, in my mind, uh, uh, I, in that draft, I was in Milwaukee. I, mean, I think that was the year I got dismissed in Milwaukee. I'm not sure. But, um, but, but Dwayne Wade went, went, was a Marquette guy. Right, that's right. I, yep. I, I worked out. At, in Marquette's gym a lot with Dwayne Wade. My son played against Dwayne Wade. My son was a high school player in Milwaukee and played down against him. So you knew him pretty well then? I knew he was a winner. 
I really? knew, I knew. I mean, the Marquette program owes owes a lot to Dwayne Wade. Yeah, because Marquette was kind of a floundering program when Dwayne Wade got there. It, it blew up again. It's still a pretty damn good program, but I mean, Dwayne Wade was the guy that kind of, in a lot of ways, saved Marquette basketball. So yeah, we had a lot of love for him in Milwaukee. Um, you know, if I'm in that draft room, I probably like I probably like Dwayne Wade more than I like Melo. Hmm. I like a guy that kind of plays the game to win, you know, with a more winning mentality, a more angry mentality, more than just an offensive mentality. It's funny to say this now because we know how things unfolded, but at that time, Carmelo won a national championship. So this idea of like Dwayne Wade knew he was a winner, Melo actually won. That's true. They beat Kansas, and Kansas missed Kansas 74 free throws that year. Kansas and, was my team that year. Yeah, I remember that game, and Melo, Melo's a hell of a player. Yeah, I think everybody knew, but everybody, even in college, you knew Melo was going to be a scorer. As where I think the total basketball player, which coaches gravitate to more than individualists, uh, I, I think it would have been really interesting how that would have branded the Denver Nuggets in a lot of ways. But again, you know, Melo did his job. Yeah. You know, when they got him, they were an awful basketball team. They were a pretty good basketball team his first year. Second year, made the playoffs. Made the playoffs first First year. year. First year, yeah, in my second. And he had a big game. I think the last or second to last game of the year, Melo had a really big fourth quarter to put them into the play. They were right on the edge of of getting it, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to do that, to take a bad basketball team and in your first year make it an NBA playoff team, I have a high respect for. Uh, but uh, again, you know, you're asking me basically, do I like Dwayne Wade more than Melo? And I said, yeah, I like Dwayne Wade more than I like Melo. What would have happened had you never assumed the head coaching position with Denver? First of all, I'll start with you. What do you think if you didn't have the, the Denver gig? Was there a place at the time that you wanted to be or a team that you look at in hindsight and say, oh, there would have been an opening here and I would have liked that job? Um, the job is always kind of enticing a little bit was Mitch Kupchak is a good friend. And the Lakers kind of were going through a change. And Mitch and I always talked about could I coach Kobe? And, uh, you know, there were a couple phone calls there with Kobe and I. and They went with Rudy T. Because there was a little break between right. Phil Jackson. I think Jerry Buss was more into big guys. And I was probably more into playing fast and quick little guards and scoring points fast. And I think the Lakers tradition has always been get the best big guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, that might not be on my resume very often. <laughs> especially now. Except for unless you had Jokic. Jokic is a point guard, man. <laughs> He's just a tall point guard. Um, you and Kobe would, is interesting to think about, especially yeah. at that time because the Rudy T point in time, and I know it was actually with Phil too, that was the 2004, 5, 6, 7. That's when Kobe was scoring 81, 62, all, all of these. This is when his numbers were through the roof. You speed the pace up a little bit. He might be scoring 85, 86 in those games instead. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Kobe liked the ball in his hands a lot. Um, yeah. you, you know, he's a, you know in a lot of ways he's a, a better mellow and a m- much more competitive defensive player. Uh, and doesn't you know he has a refuse to lose mentality. I mean his winning pedigree is legit. 
Uh, it was angry. At times it probably was individualistic, but most of the time it got, got the job done. The big trade for me, like you have, okay, you arrive in Denver and the Nuggets are still really young. Okay, there's some pieces, but Iverson getting traded to Denver to me, that was like a new era. So you got the mellow without George Carl, then you got mellow and George Carl together, and then when Iverson gets there, it's almost like a new era. What if the Nuggets didn't make that trade? As fun as it was for Nuggets fans, what was the trajectory of the team prior to that, in your opinion, and where was it headed? I think it was in a good place. Um, for me, it would have been where we would have gone. You know, we, we had to get more pieces. We weren't at, we, without, the trade was to move us in a higher position. I think everybody thought it did, um, but I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to knock it. But we got we got the latter end of AI's right, career. Right. He was not a very good defender. He was not a very good. I mean, his offense was damn good. He had explosive nights, but he didn't have consistent explosive nights. Right. And uh, and I, and it was a good try. I mean, for me, I I, I respect what the organization was trying to do. But in the same sense, um, when we got Chauncey is when I think hope and commitment came as much as we were fantasizing with AI. So the fun one here in the 2000s, if you, you, get, you get Chauncey, and obviously the 2009 season, maybe the most famous season in Nuggets history, at least modern history. What if you get over the hump with the Lakers? Two games razor thin margins but if you do what happens in a finals against the orlando magic i think everybody realizes it I'm, I'm, we thought orlando was a step below both us and the lakers we were you know we scouted that series as we all do you prepare for it i think we beat orlando both times in that year um uh, you know, they, they had a good team. I mean, don't get me wrong. At that time, they were playing at a high level. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I don't think there's any... I think if we got through to the Lakers, I think we would have exploded. We would have gotten the confidence to go go play harder and better than we were playing. And I think we would have won it. They were interesting to me because they were a proto-modern team meaning they had a rim roller. They had a pick-and-roll dynamic with Dwight Howard, spread pick-and-roll. They had stretch players in Turkaloo and, and Richard Lewis. So they played a little bit of this five, four-out, one-rim roller style of play, and that was before its time a little bit. How do you feel the team was equipped to handle that specific aspect of it? Because I agree. I think the team was more talented than Nuggets, but I do think there was a three-point aspect to that team that created a real big variable. I agree with that, but I think we had big guys who could match up in different ways with Howard and take away his presence. Um, but there's no question that, that that team was a little ahead of its time. Uh, and, but I just think we had more, more skills. I think we had more, our, our star players were a little better. Um, I think Chauncey's leadership was dynamic. And I think we would have figured out how to make Dwight Howard just a good player. Excuse yeah. me. Just a good player, <laughs> not a great player. Um, we go on now to uh, after Mello here. Actually, let me, let me, we'll go a little bit before this. The very next year is the year you get sick. 
have to miss. The team's very good. 2009's the year, but he remembers 2010 also very good years. Kind of in many ways a repeat. So you have another stab at it. When she gets sick, what happens if you don't get sick that year? Because the team fell off. Adrian Dant- uh, Dantley assumes the head coaching job. It's a tough spot to be in. Team team kind of crumbles. What happens if you don't get sick that year? Well, I I thought in January of that year we were the best team in the NBA. Could we have sustained it? Uh, I think we could have. I think we would have had to figure out some things in the playoffs. But I think we're cap- we are capable. And I think our fear of L.A. had subsided to where we felt we were equal to L.A. Uh, but, you know, uh, that was the, that's probably the saddest I've been in my career of, of getting sick like that and, and seeing the team mm-hmm. fall apart a little bit. Uh, but the, the one thing about that team, it was not a great defensive team. Mm. And uh, I thought at that time, Melo and, and Chauncey and maybe a couple other players you could throw in there. Uh, I don't know if we were tough enough defensively to get over the hump, but it was definitely one of the team that would be a top three or four team. Do you think it was – this happens sometimes, I think, from the outside looking in. You have a team make the Western Conference Finals. Defensively, November, December, January, they're just not the same. And Do you think this was a team that – come March, come April, would have, could have got to that place? Or was there some pieces maybe you missed that you were like, hey, I don't know if we're there? Well, I, I think the area that I saw when I left the team was whatever. It was like, it was like the substitute teacher. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, my voice was more defensive, more defensive demanding than I think my assistants could bring mm. to the table. And I thought they got into some bad habits towards the end of the year at the defensive end of the court. And I, I don't know if you remember the series, but Utah, just Darren, Darren, uh, Darren Williams and Wes Matthews basically right. destroyed our two and three guys. Right. This next one's funny to me. So in 2011, of course, Mello leaves. But what if Mello had stayed? And here's why I think this one's funny. He came out on a podcast a couple weeks back and said, I never wanted to leave Denver. I wasn't <laughs> the one that wanted to do this. And... I've heard a bunch of different things about why he felt this and the team said they were going to rebuild and he didn't want to be a part of that. The reason I have, I'm just going to tell you my part and you could set the record straight, but the reason I have a hard time believing this is he went to a team that was rebuilding. <laughs> It'd be one thing if he left Denver and went to an already made team, but you look at the roster he went to, that was not a team built to compete. But So you could maybe answer that. Did Melo or do you believe him when he says, I never wanted to leave Denver, they kind of pushed me out. And then second of all, just what would have happened if Melo stayed was the team going to reset, and do you feel like they could have done so quickly so that they didn't skip a beat? Well, I, th- I think back then I really had a lot of confidence in Masai. I think Masai was – I don't think he was trying to tear the team apart. I thought Masai was trying to find the championship piece. Okay. And, um, and Melo demanding a trade threw the team into kind of a, a state of compromise. So we play like – 50 games of that season, not knowing what's going to happen. And it's not a fun place to be. But everybody knew that he wanted yeah. out. Yeah. And, uh, and when we made the trade, I thought we made a hell of a trade. And everybody got excited, and we had a great run down the stretch. So, so I think we would have been – I think we would have kept on the same, same pattern of success. And we would have had to add a piece – Masai would have had to find an answer somewhere along the way. Uh, and I think we would have sustained being a 50-win team and hopefully a better playoff team. 
from talking to you now, we've been doing the show for a year and a half. I think I am starting to gather some of your basketball philosophy. And correct me if, if where I'm wrong on this, if if at all. Your belief is that you can't build a surefire championship contender. At least in most markets, you can't do that. All you can do is have your hat in the ring. And it sounds like that's what you're saying is we would have had our hat in the ring. And if this player this would have worked out or if this thing would have been available, we could have gotten over the hump. But you can't say for certain that would have happened. You just know we would have had our hat in the ring. I think you just got to hang around. Yeah. I mean, in a small market situation, even though Denver's a big city now, but it's considered somewhat of a small market in NBA. I think small marketing for whatever reason. Yeah. Money. Yeah. Um, I I just think when you're in a small market, you just got to try to stay stay around. And I I really believe once every ten years in the NBA, a surprise team wins it. And uh, sometimes that team can be a team like the like a team even like this year's Denver Nuggets. Can they stay around and something happens and Murray gets healthy and all of a sudden he comes back in April or March or April and he's got a, he's got 100% energy in his battery where everybody else might be down and that might be a piece. And I think staying going with more veteran players is I think a smart move. But uh, I think that's where they are right now. They're, they're, they they got to hang around and when the opportunity comes, don't be afraid to be bold which I think has been a weakness of this organization. 2013, what if Gallo doesn't get hurt? How, how far does that team go? I honestly think we beat him. But, you know, I think the series is a lot closer than people think it was. And Gallo would have given us, I know, one more win yeah. to get to at least game seven. And um, the game seven would have been probably on our court. And... Um, I think that's that's the key to it all. I think it would have been a seven-game series, and in a lot of ways, uh, we might have been the team that woke up the league as we're, you know, uh, Gallo isn't in the Steph Curry mode, but Gallo's a damn good basketball player. And I think people also forget that Fareed and, and Ty were banged up. Fareed, I think, missed right. game one, yep, maybe game, game two. Yep. And Ty was not 100% in that series. If you... Um who was the set? Who would have been the the matchup after that one? Who did who did they go on to play here? I'm looking it up right now. San Antonio. San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And San they were pretty good. And, and I'm watching. They were pretty you know, darn good. Golden State should have been up 2-0, and they should have won both. They they had a 20 point lead. They won game one, had a 20 point lead in game two, and blew it. Yeah. In overtime, and then somehow San Antonio woke up. That was a heck of a team, 13 and 14 Spurs, some of my favorites um, of all. Here's a fun one. If you, what, what if you weren't fired in 2013? And again, I'm going to give this one here. Like, should you have been fired? Of course, coach of the year, team doing great, best win, best record, all this stuff. But here's the thing. That next year, Gallo's out. Andre Iguodala's gone. I don't think that team was that good that year, 2014. And it was a little bit of a messy year just for roster. And some of this was out of the, everybody's control. But... How would it have gone in th that next year if you were at the helm? Or do you feel like you it might have been set up for failure whoever uh, took the helm? I, don't think, I, don't, I think the confusion started with the dismissal of me and Masai going, going to uh, uh, Toronto. Right. And then you have Gallo's injury lingering. Why? I thought the organization went from a kind of a well-run, cultured, 
Team likes the coach, coach likes the team. It went crazy, it went goofy. In one year, it went from a, a great place to what the hell's going on place. Right. And that's how, you know, we've talked about a lot of those stories. It seems like the mishandling in the summertime happens a lot more than people think it does. Right, right. Well, this is where this is a tough one. I think I'm putting you in a tough spot because now you're talking about a situation that you just left from and this or that. But I wonder, Tim Conley was brand new. Uh, Josh Kroenke in a lot of ways was brand new in terms of like having his fingerprints on all of this. The first two years, I think even they would tell you were, were really messy for them after they moved on. From 2016 on, you, in my opinion, you could start to see more of a plan. You talk about it was messy, this or that. You could start to see a little bit more cohesiveness and structure and continuity and all these different things. Do you feel for a rookie GM, maybe in some ways a rookie owner or, or whatever we want to call you know president in Josh's case, do you feel like sometimes you have to fail against that? Like Mike, Mike D'Antoni, those were the learning days for them. They screwed up, made a lot of bad decisions, but it arrived them at the point they are today. I think they had a great, they had very good perseverance because it was kind of goofy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, when I had Ty, I thought Ty was close to an all-star. And then within a year or two, Ty, you know, fell out of favor. Whatever reason, you know, fell out of favor with the coaching staff. He fell out of favor with being here or whatever. But, you know, Ty was our engine. And so I don't think that would have changed. I think Ty would have had a much better a longer career of success and greatness. Mm. Um, and I think then they had the chaos between Nurkic and Jokic. Right. That they were they never looked like they fitted mm -hmm. together. And then they made good draft picks. Right. You know, they got Murray, they got Harris, they got good players. And I think, you know, I, I applaud their ability to find the players they have found. And I'll also find the MVP in the second round. That's spectacular. But, um, uh, you know, to, to go from a team that was in good rhythm, good place, and blow it up, whatever reasons for me and, and Masai and, and, you know, hiring a coach that went to a, the triangle and the low post or whatever, I mean, the changes were too drastic yeah, and too dynamic. And uh, I think players started feeling the crazy of Gallo not being there. Why did we change? And they're not as successful as they were last year. So you have the basketball BS that comes into the game. I honestly, we talked about this with Kenneth Farid on, on that show a couple weeks ago. By the way, if you missed it, fantastic. One of my favorite shows we've done. But Farid in some ways got swept up in that transition. I think Ty Lawson did too. Both of their careers were, to buy, in 2013, if you said buying or selling the stock, everybody was buying, both right. of those guys. Two years of the of sort of the them figuring out their footing. I mean, we're talking two years. That's two years of guys' career. Both of their careers were almost over at that point by the time Denver stabilized. So, and, and I'm, I think everybody's responsible for their own careers and this or that. But you do look at that and just think, like, man, that was a real curveball that that took them both in different directions. Um, mm. I thought we were a shooter away. If Gallo was healthy, we were. I mean, we led led the league in scoring that year with being the 27th worst worst three-point shooting team and 29th worst free-throw shooting team in the league. And, when, and the way the game is played today, we were ahead of that curve. Mm. We were playing it as well or better than most teams in, at that time. And, you know, five, six years later, everybody's playing the way kind of we played back then. I got two more for you, and they're for the modern Nuggets team. 
two years ago. This is the one I got when I told him before the, before the show what we were going to do. This is the one he rolled his eyes at, but uh, I still love it. Game two against the Lakers in the bubble. Nuggets are down 0-1. They lose the first game. Jokic in foul trouble the whole game, whatever. Game two, they outplay him. In my opinion, they outplay the Lakers. Anthony Davis hits a shot at the buzzer, and they go up 2-0. You're in the Western Conference Finals. You just came back two times from 3-1. If the Nuggets, if he doesn't hit that shot, Nuggets take game two, and it's 1-1. Does that series go meaningfully different, in yes. your opinion? No question. I mean, 1-1 is so much different than 2-0. Uh, and the mentality of the bubble, I think even 1-1, mm. you get enthusiastic. 2-0, you go, can we really do this? The mentality of the bubble, I think, was hurt by L.A. going up 2-0. If it goes 1-1, I still think the Lakers probably figure out how to win it, but it's probably 6 or 7. The other thing about it is if you go up 1, or if it's 1-1 and you win game 3 as Denver did, I mean, again, who knows, but if Denver takes a 2-1 lead, to me, that just gives you, one, a lot of confidence, a lot of energy. But also, if you lose game four and it's 2-2, you get a chance to bounce back game five. So, to me, Denver just kept totally. getting behind the eight ball. And I look at that. And when people say it was a five-game series, this or that, I look. I hate when people do that because I look at it and say, it's very close to being a 2-2 two, two series or 2-1 series. And if you're at that point, everything's different. No. And I think so much of, of any any series is the first two games. First two games, if you win both of them, yeah, there have been teams that have come back from 2-0 down. And, of course, the Nuggets have shown a lot of perseverance in the in the bubble. Uh, but the mentality of, of this series, when you're up 2-0, you have a lot more psychological control of where the series is going to go. Last one I have for you. This is an unfair question because lots of teams were hurt, but let's just assume Denver didn't lose Jamal Murray, Will Barton, and P.J. Dozier. They have their squad last year. Do you think that they – how far do they go? Do they beat the Suns? Do they win the finals? Do they, In your mind, a fully healthy Nuggets team last year, what do they do? Well, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure of them, Dozier or Barton as, as being important. I think if they have Murray, they take Phoenix to a seven-game, six-seven-game series, a real series as it never turned out to be that way. Without Murray, Chris Paul's control, and, um, you know, they, they, Phoenix really got in a good rhythm in our series, in that series against Denver. And uh, they played great. They played really uh, probably better than they might be in a lot of ways. I'm um, interested to see where Phoenix comes back to this year, see if they can, can, can take what they did last year and build on it. I would say there's a good chance it could go down. I think Phoenix has got to be aware that they they might have got dealt an easy easier hand than they thought they, they think they did. Coach, you could just lie to me and just say they would have won it all. They would have swept the Bucks. Just lie to me. Make me feel good here for a second. <laughs> Give me a little bit of hope on this. Well, I think the NBA right now is I don't know who is the best team in the NBA right now. Yeah. I think there's a lot of contenders. Yep. You know, and, and as the season goes on, we'll, some of those guys will become real contenders and some of them will fade down that they're pretenders. But uh, right now, summer talk is crazy right now. Summer talk is goofy right now. Summer talk is always screwed up. But because training camp's going to start, and then because of the short training camp, I think the first 20, 25 games are somewhat fueling out process in the NBA. Well, I appreciate you giving us a, an hour of goofy talk. 
Summer, summer goofy talk. It was a lot of fun for me. I know the audience had a lot of fun as well. Summer talk. Summer talk. Um, this time, I know last time we talked, it was August, and you were saying, August, I don't think basketball is my rhythm. But now we're in September, and we are two and a half weeks away from media day. As a coach, this time of year, are you still checked out? Is it important at this point? Or are you now starting to get back into things? Yeah. <clears throat> You know, I'm trying to figure out what camps I'm going to go to. I'll probably go to see Charlotte. Okay. Um, I'm hoping my son catches on with Philadelphia, so I might be hanging out in Philadelphia a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to get into the gym again. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget this is a podcast. In a couple weeks, we'll be back with the Legends edition of it, and we'll also be back because training camp is, is picking up. We're not that far away. Next time we talk, we'll be on the eve of training camp. It should be a lot of fun. Hit the like button on the way out, everybody. We'll see you all next time. Adios.